0: Today is the second day of our winter 2022 seven-day session. It's the 17th of July, and we're going to continue to explore dukkha. Uh, reading from uh, Turning Suffering Inside Out, a Zen Approach to Living with Physical and Emotional Pain by Darlene Cohen. I didn't mention yesterday that the, uh, the classical translation of this word dukkha, this, um, Pali word, is unsatisfactoriness. It is the, the first noble truth or, or ennobling truth that sometimes it is um, designated and the first of the three characteristics of existence. It's where the Buddha started. This is important to understand. He, when he saw a sick person, an old person and a dead person, this was where his spiritual searching was, was um, initiated. It was a kind of initiation to really, really take in the import of sickness, old age and death. The, these three um, are central, but they're not the only—they're not the only um, ways in which we suffer. I can just find my. Also um, part of suffering are the four averse states, they're called. Being with those you do not want to be with. Not being with those you want to be with. Doing what you do not wish to do. And not doing what you wish to do. Not not doing what you wish to do. Shingyin put it this way. To suffer, we suffer when we are separated from people or things which we wish to remain in contact with. And when we have to deal with people or things that we wish to avoid. When we cannot get what we want, we suffer. And when we cannot get rid of things which we do not want, we suffer. or well, put, put very simply, this is by the Advaita teacher, uh, passed away now I think, uh, Nisargadatta. Niz- we want what we don't have, and we don't want what we have. Also, uh, just to set the record straight, um, yesterday in Taisho, I mangled um, something that Thich Nhat Hanh said. Um, this is what he, what he actually said. Every second I am on the path that leads out of suffering, suffering is there to guide me. Every second I am on the path that leads out of suffering, suffering is there to guide me. This is why it's so important that we make friends with our suffering, (coughs) that we um, don't just uh, block it out, because suffering guides us. Suffering seen through is Wisdom. <coughs> now, just to continue on from where we left off. <coughs> um, Darlene Cohen had been describing um, the ups and downs of samsaric existence in, in a half a day of her n- normal routine. Uh, Samsara literally means journeying. The the ups and downs of the the wheel of birth and death or or our pains and our pleasures and our reactions to them. So now she moves on to looking at the ways in which we, um, we resist the full awareness of these emotional ups and downs. In other words, what strategies we use to get off the wheel, so to speak. And she, she enumerates three major ones, uh, compulsive busyness, victimhood, and addiction, and as you can see, the likelihood that these will actually get us off the off the wheel are uh, about zero, because they are themselves um, afflictive. Shanti Deva said, "Those desiring to escape from suffering hasten right towards suffering." With the very desire for happiness, out of delusion, they destroy their own happiness as if it were an enemy. And here, here, these are some of the the prime ways in which we do this. First one: compulsive busyness. This is another way of of um, saying restlessness, and uh, we we might recognize that restlessness is, is enumerated as one of the, the five hindrances, not, not helpful at all. Compulsive busyness. Many people spend years developing a strategy to insulate themselves from feeling their feelings. They bury themselves in activity the way a substance abuser buries herself in drink or drugs No matter how many things she races to do during the day, there's always something more to be done. When there is a threat of hurt or disappointment due to circumstances beyond her control, there's no time to feel it. The laundry has to be put in the dryer. The kids have to be picked up. The report has to be finished. The car has to be washed. The overall feeling is unpleasant enough. Frantic, strangled, But what she does, but she does manage to avoid the the real lows, the grief, the anger, the disillusionment. I think we're really part of um, a whole society that is uh, engaged in compulsive busyness. people um, are asked how they are, often they will say, oh, I'm very busy. And that's seen as being a kind of virtue. It shows you're you're engaged, you're plugged in. It's... it's, uh, a serious thing when we think in terms of, of uh, humanity's problems right now that we all to one extent or another use this this uh, busyness as a way of, of, of denying the crisis we're in we keep rushing around in our cars even though our cars are Causing chaos to the climate. She continues. I knew a woman who dealt with bad feelings in this way. After years of feeling strangled and resentful of the fact that her kids were growing up without her really noticing, she decided to try to change her habit of busyness. She rearranged the priorities of her daily life and dropped anything she thought was unnecessary to her job and her roles as wife and mother. The first thing she noticed was how depressed she felt. This amazed her. She had thought she was going to feel relief and then happiness. Instead she started to see exactly why she had developed the habit of busyness. In other words, she began to feel the old feelings of hopelessness and despair she remembered from her youth. She told me, It's like mowing the lawn to be able to see the wildflowers and instead seeing all the weeds. I advised her to spend some tum, tum, time every day looking at the weeds, examining their shape and colour, studying them without interruption. She seemed startled by my suggestion, but was intrigued She had nothing to lose. In another few months, the weeds had parted. Not only had she discovered a bottom to her feelings of hopelessness and despair, but the nuances of these dreaded feelings gave some sort of subtle, agreeable flavour to her time with her children, like some perspective against which to appreciate the passage of time with them. I find this Woman's account of penetrating her mundane anguish, fascinating. And uh, and we can re-interpre- this, reinterpret this, this in the sashine context. Um, with if if our practice is shikantaza, and this would be. Um, Darlene Cohen's practice too. Um, there is a sense of just, just allowing whatever arises to arise, have a certain life, and then pass away. And we just sit, the 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 uh, sort of benevolent witness of all that that um, arises. Um, one Vajrayana tradition of this kind of practice is. Um, an analogy is made to uh, an old man sitting in the sun watching children play so not um, caught up in what he's seeing but also not um, rejecting it or reacting one way or another. If our practice is the breath, then that's our anchor. And thoughts and feelings will arise as we, um, as we sit and get more absorbed in the breath. And we notice them. We'll, we'll, we'll catch them sooner. We'll see them we'll, as, our, as our, um, our mindfulness grows. We'll be able to to see them as they come, uh, but we keep returning to the breath. Again, there's no rejection or attachment, but the 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 flavour of our coming back is 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 a little different. We come back to the breath. If we're working on a koan, then. Um, We bring our question to whatever arises, the thoughts and feelings that arise. What is, what is thinking this? Or just, or just move right there where the thoughts and feelings are. Again, not rejecting or attaching to, but with this, this uh, hook of the question. All of these, you could say, are kind of uh, processes of of defusion, of we're not just completely fused with what's going through our mind, but seeing and experiencing the thoughts and feelings as thoughts and feelings. Next section is headed, always a victim, never a vulnerable person. Uh, so victimhood as a a way of reacting. Another strategy we use to deal with painful feelings is the victim stance, always blaming something outside ourselves for circumstances that are challenging or disagreeable. Uh, We were looking at Adlerian psychology a week or two ago, and he talked about the stance of that bad person. So the first one we looked at, busyness, is is to do with the hindrance of restlessness. This one is is really the hindrance of anger or aversion. So again, a a strategy that we think is going to relieve our suffering, but um, just compounds it always blaming something outside ourselves for circumstances that are challenging or disagreeable. Many times we are right. There is some outside factor that has precipitated our misery, and we should voice our objections to the personal institution that disempowered us. But often, even after obtaining redress, we are still in the victim stance, this time over something else. We only feel comfortable when we are addressing some outside cause of our internal feelings of self-hatred. Probably everybody knows somebody who, for whom righteous indignation has become the kind of default mode. If, or you might recognize your own tendency to go to that default mode. And and it's not surprising that people do um, find a, a place of um, kind of safety within anger, because when you when you're um, upset about something in this way, it feels it feel you feel strong, full of energy, alive. And it is is a relief from the feelings of self-hatred, which are often uh, very scary. We can spend our lives this way and feel triumphant at each victory, or at the very least righteously outraged at each defeat. But if we assume this particular stance at every turn in our lives, we continually feel disconnected from most situations and many people. No amount of personal success or adulation will fill our pit. Think here of our uh, second bodhisattva vow. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. That's the thing about the blind passions, they're endless. They are a bottomless chasm. We can pour all we can into, them, but that, that pit will never be filled, never be satisfied. No matter how much personal excess or adulation we'll, we get, it will never fill our pit. We'll always walk alone, us and our outrage. And this is the, the the shadow side of of this kind of stance, is that it's it can be deeply lonely. One one feels kind of uh, barricaded against the world. We find maybe that the walls that we build up, we can't, we, we can't let them down at all. They're, they're always there. As a case in point, I know a successful novelist whose knee-jerk reaction to any unpleasantness is a a lawsuit, but this is, this is uh, California, No amount of personal success and admiration has persuaded her that anyone outside her very small circle of friends does not have as his or her goal her personal annihilation. Because she is so smart and clever, she has developed this worldview into an art form. Outside her strict writing hours, she spends considerable energy talking to lawyers and describing the wrongs done to her. I always considered this quirk of hers, a mere pimple on the surface of her brilliant mind, until I noticed over the years how small her circle of trusted intimates had gotten. Last year it consisted only of her husband and one of her daughters. Because I have known and admired her for so long, it feels funny to realise that she really has become the archetypal bitter old prune." The angry woman who has narrowed her options so severely, her world is bleak. The third third category that um, Cohen has here is addiction. Is this is attachment turned into an ongoing habit, you could say. And here's what she says about this Not only do we Americans flatten out the curve of emotional volubility with our addictions to alcohol, food, and drugs, but our habit pattern of avoiding pain by returning again and again to the same favorite states of mind, to sex, excitement, crisis, compulsive work also constitutes an addiction. As Robert Aitken points out in The Mind of Clover, addiction sets up a pattern of avoiding the low emotional places in life. The best therapy is the practice of acknowledging one's feelings and making friends with them. Then they can be seen as truly transparent. Cohen then comments, When thoughts are perceived as transparent, It means that we can see through them to their source, the the ceaseless busyness of our minds. Thoughts and feelings follow each other, one after the other, in a constant, ever-changing flow. If we can be quiet enough to watch this flow with curiosity rather than agitation, it seems quite arbitrary to become disturbed or transported by any particular one. We see... We see the the form, the container of uh, the thoughts and feelings, rather than getting getting caught up in the content. We see the pattern, the the patterns of thought energy, you could say. It's like it's like. Um, a drone image of a river flowing as opposed to being right up next to that river you can see the see the shape and the direction not just the the water moving and actually with that analogy the further we 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 pull back say from a from a river or a um, an ocean to they will appear more uh, more still. So we left off, if if we can be quiet enough to watch this flow with curiosity rather than agitation, it seems quite arbitrary to become disturbed or transported by any particular one. In other words, any particular thought or feeling. Yet, this doesn't mean that if we see their transparency, we become indifferent to our thoughts and feelings. We continue to have them, of course, but we have a choice about whether to believe they are the only point of view to which we can subscribe. Robert Aitkinton continues, feelings, whether of compassion or irritation, should be welcomed because both are ourselves. The tangerine I am eating is me. I clean this teapot with the kind of attention I would have were I giving the baby Buddha or Jesus a bath. Nothing should be treated more carefully than anything else. In mindfulness, compassion, irritation, mustard green and teapot are all sacred. All of it in mindfulness, in awareness. So we we uh, aim for the middle way, not rejecting, not attaching. It's one way we can understand the first of the four noble truths, all beings without number, I vow to liberate. All, it includes all, all beings that exist in our minds, in our hearts. Next section is uh, headed up, Pleasure and Addiction, a Slave in the Realm of the Gods. It's probably clear to everyone why we humans might reflexively avoid pain and discomfort, and thus why we'd want to discontinue whatever behaviour brings them on. But it's not so obvious what the downside is when we compulsively chase after pleasure. We all want to attain pleasure in some form or another. Some of us have simple needs, a full belly, a sexual partner, the esteem of our fellows, Some of us make it our life's work to achieve peace of mind or to experience something called religious ecstasy. We hear these words a lot in connection with spiritual matters. And it may be that the possibility of ecstasy or serenity is what attracts many people to take up the rigors of meditation practices in the first place. Most of us decide to begin a meditation practice when we're in the pain aspect of the pain-pleasure cycle. We're suffering in various ways, and it occurs to us that what we suffer, it occurs to us that we suffer precisely because of our perceptions of things, and that there's something wrong with those perceptions, and we want to escape our suffering into some more agreeable state of mind. So we begin to practice meditation in order to alter those defective perceptions and expand our knowledge of various states of mind. And we could say that um, that was how the Buddha got started too. The f- saw the fact of suffering and all his teachings um, blossomed out of that awareness. I came to meditation for this reason. When I first heard the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, that lo- life is suffering that desire in the form of grasping and aversion is the cause of suffering, that we can cease desire-based suffering. And here's how I said, that's for me. I was absolutely thrilled that somebody had been doing research on this problem for thousands of years. We've been been using not desire in in our... um, uh, reading of this, but um, for tanha, but thirst or craving, this, this um, um, kind of, a, it's got this obsessional or, or um, very sticky aspect to it that, that is captured better by the words thirst or ca- craving. Even though it certainly feels better to experience pleasure than pain and it therefore seems eminently reasonable to prefer it, in fact chasing after pleasure doesn't deliver us from the clutches of misery. Often pleasure fails to relieve our depression or anxiety for more than a brief interlude and the chase itself actually exacerbates them. We are all intelligent enough to manipulate our world to achieve pleasure but we can't hold on to it once we get it nor can we always get just the thing that we think we want. Sometimes when we get what we want it doesn't please us as we thought it would, or at all. Be careful what you pray for, the wise woman counsels. The particular pleasure we want may be too hard to attain, like the admiration of a certain person. It may end too soon, like a sexual interlude. It may not be as thorough and distracting as we hoped, like a disappointing movie. Or if it does work for us, the sex was great and the movie good, then after a pleasant interval in which we are lulled into a state of well-being, the pleasure ends, and we are plunged back into the world of suffering, all the worse for having been temporarily reassured. This is what usually happens when we finally get the desired job or marry the perfect mate. There is a honeymoon period followed by a return to normal. In this way, pain and pleasure are constant companions. And again, this, the, the this suffering that, that she's described is so um, intimately connected with anicca impermanence. So we mentioned before the three characteristics of existence. Um, they really they, they go together: the, the impermanence and the suffering, and also the third one, the no self. In the original Pali, it goes: "Sabe sankara anicca, sabe sankara dukkha, sabe dhamma anatta." So all compounded things are impermanent. all compounded things are unsatisfactory. all things are without self. So the first two are compounded things, sankhara and then the third one uh, no self is all things all whether conditioned or unconditioned are without self. And these 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 play, Uh, kind of an interplay between these three. The problem of impermanence which which inherently makes all that is is is, um, compounded, unsatisfactory, unstable. Fleeting. Ungraspable. She continues, Because we yearn so passionately to be forever happy and we can imagine such a thing, we concoct the possibility of a sort of heaven, the complete elimination of pain and permanent state of pleasure. If we are very industrious, we get rich enough to acquire every physical comfort and surround ourselves with faunas. Or if our inclination is spiritual rather than material and we finally figure out how to course in the realm of the gods, we have indeed achieved great bliss. Trungpa Rinpoche describes the state of mind in his book Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. He says, we relax, dwell upon our achievements, shield out unpleasant thoughts. It's hypnotic, blissful, proud. Everything happens naturally, easily, automatically. And Darlene Cohen adds, we get parking spaces with no problem. We're always in the right line at the grocery store or the toll gate. Then Trinkpa continues, when we are in the realm of the gods, whatever we hear is musical. Whatever we see is colourful. Whatever we feel is pleasant. We have achieved a kind of self-hypnosis, a natural state of concentration which blocks out of the mind everything that might be irritating or painful. It's a kind of trance state in which the empire of ego is completely extended to include everything. It has no boundaries. And you can immediately see that such a state is highly seductive, to be at ease isn't this what we we long for, to be secure, to be um, in a place where everything flows. She continues, suddenly returning to real life from this hypnotic intoxication can sometimes be a terrible crash. The teenage daughter of a client of mine was arrested with three friends after the girls spent an afternoon on a shoplifting spree in a local mall. All were good students who had never been in trouble before. When my client arrived at the small security office to pick up her daughter after the arrest, she found the child close to passing out with anxiety and self-loathing, a state of mind that continued for several days. She could not look at her mother or father or even her little sister without cringing with shame. What impressed both my client and me was that the girl seemed almost not to know the person who had done the stealing. It was so amazing, she told her mother, her expression turning rapt even in describing what had felt what it had felt to like take thing, what it had felt to take things from so many stores without getting caught we felt after a while we could do anything have anything even stuff we didn't care about just because we were so special such clever people this this is the realm of the gods the sense of 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 power of, of, um, agency. The daughter also said, now I can't even imagine what I was thinking then. It's like I was a different person, but it was great. This is, this is, um, in, in older times, you might have, uh, called this a case of possession. And it does have that quality of, of something else taking over. This sometimes, this sometimes happens in session two where we can get to, to a state which is highly intoxicating. Owen continues. While I was living at Green Gulch Farm, a Zen farming community, as a student of Zen, I popped into the realm of the gods for a fairly long period of time, a couple of months. I got good at keeping myself in there by means of concentration practices. It felt so wonderful to hang out there. Everything went my way for a change. My perceptions were so stunningly clear not only in organising my activities, but in relations with other people, that I assumed this state of mind was my reward after all that meditation. I had finally got enlightened like the meditation masters of ancient times. People actually started treating me differently after a time, more kindly and respectfully, perhaps because I had been so obnoxious before, and now I was calmer, more open to other people's opinions. I felt very empathetic to everybody even to the point of feeling sorry for them that they weren't as fortunate as advanced in the meditation practice as I. Since I perceived the world generally as wonderful, wondrous and beautiful, I wasn't nearly as irritable and impatient as I had been had been my habit before. After enjoying this state of mind for a few months, I had I started to feel trapped by it, little by little. I started feeling lonely. Here I was, hanging out somewhere in the heavens, with nobody to share it. And this heavenly state of mind left me feeling cut off from the more mundane concerns of my earthbound friends. I started noticing that there were subtle forms of suffering inherent in this blissful state of mind, worrying about its ending, being isolated, always being preoccupied with keeping my absorption going. So striving in there. Finally, I really wanted to return to the ups and downs of ordinary life. It's it's not so uncommon f- f- um, that um, people sometimes can experience a, s- a state of uh, great absorption, usually not so for such a long period of time, but then try to hold on to it, and even try to recapture it uh, in sishin after sishin. It's a real trap because what got us into that absorbed state was uh, forgetting the self and obviously this, the self is, is there trying to fix something in in time and space, grasp it and hold on to it. This is, this is a kind of, as Chogram Trimper puts it, spiritual materialism, spiritual acquisitiveness. This grasping can take other forms too, such as um, resenting our sishin job and seeing it as an interruption to our practice. When we, you know, when we get the job finished, we think, ah, now I can get on with the real work of coming to awakening. If you get attached to this state of mind, this is meaning this state of, of, of absorption, unwilling or unable to go on with your ordinary life, then it's as if you've fallen into some kind of pit. You you lose your ability to relate to other people with their everyday concerns. Despite your wonderful state of mind, you're still experiencing some subtle suffering. You have to work to maintain this bliss and you're worried it might get knocked out you might get knocked out of it. But worst of all, perhaps even more than compulsive thinking or feeling sorry for yourself, constantly striving to maintain a blissful state of mind interferes with your ability to experience what's right in front of you. Actually, knows another story. A Zen student who had planned to do a one-day meditation retreat I was leading came up to me the day before the retreat and told me he couldn't sit with me after all because something had come up in his life. I was immediately concerned. I said I hope nothing terrible had happened. He said, oh no, and then hastened to assure me that he was fine. Then he told me he couldn't meditate because he had gotten a promotion at work. He was very excited about getting more money and having more responsibility and his mind was so agitated by these pleasant thoughts he couldn't sit still. I consider this student mature enough to settle down during a day of meditating or at least capable of observing every mental and bodily manifestation of his agitation if he had decided to join us for the retreat, but he chose not to. He didn't want to take the the edge off his happy state of mind. In other words, this, this guy wasn't, wasn't in that place of renunciation yet. He was still um, in some, some sense, some recesses of his mind, uh, thinking that, that, that attaching to these feelings was happiness. He was not seeing the the, the, the suffering inherent in them. She goes on. After I rejected the realm of the gods as a substitute for life, I was so relieved to be back that I started to be present during my ordinary, humdrum existence, doing the dishes, changing my baby's diaper and arranging cheese and crackers on platters for guest conferences at Green Gulch Farm. The latter was a perfect returning to mundane life task for me, even bordering on ironic, because it was an activity I'd been avoiding all my life. I grew up in the suburbs, watching my mum arrange endless cheese plates for meetings of her women's groups, visits from relatives, holiday gatherings. They symbolized a meaningless life to me, and I had sworn I would never have a lifestyle that involved arranging cheese on a platter. (laughs) Well, everyone has their vows. Here it was, my first job after leaving the realm of the gods. After I had been living my mundane life again for some weeks, I began to value it tremendously as if it were a great privilege. I understand that my bliss date had been very narrow and that I had been living a very one-sided existence in the realm of the gods. I'd been going down a specific path, looking to neither right nor left, missing everything that was off to the side. Ordinary life seemed now to be an explosion of experiences. I had a first time ever but deep appreciation for the rich complexity of human life. This this, um, this syndrome of of attaching to uh, pleasurable states is a is a frequent no pre- pleasurable states and and states of emptiness is a frequent theme uh, in the Cohen collection. Um, Just to give an example of one of these, this is um, case number 46 in the Mumon Khan, Step forward from the top of a hundred foot pole. Sekiso said, how can you step forward from the top of a hundred foot pole? Another ancient master said, you who sit at the top of a hundred foot pole, although you have entered the way, you are not yet genuine. Take a step from the top of the 100-foot pole and reveal your whole body in the 10 directions. You who sit at the top of a 100-foot pole, although you have entered the way, you are not yet genuine. Take a step from the top of the 100-foot pole and reveal your whole body in the 10 directions. The commentary on this. If you can step forward and turn about, is there anything to reject as unworthy? Be that as it may, tell me, how do you proceed onward from the top of a 100-foot pole? Go! We'll stop here and recite the four vows.